Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Chris Witt is the CEO and lead consultant of Advisor Assist, the leading provider of compliance and regulatory services for RIAs. Chris founded Advisor Assist in 2006 after many years in CCO and risk roles in the institutional investment management sector. Advisor Assist supports over 750 RIAs and, and 5,000 associated persons. And personally, I want to say that Chris and I have known each other for a while. Back in 2015, when I split off from a partnership, reestablished my own law firm, and had the decision on whether I wanted to incorporate a regulatory and compliance aspect in my new law firm, which is something I never did, but had in the partnership, or you know, rely upon key outside sources. I went the latter way and fortunately met Chris. And Chris and I and his team of advisors assist and my team have been uh, amazing industry partners working with a lot of common clients and uh, referring business back and forth. So Chris, it's very special for me to have you on the DealQuest podcast. Likewise. Thanks so much, Corey. Appreciate the friendship and the time here. Yeah, absolutely. So listen, I I, I want to get into a lot of what you do day to day for RAAs is the ongoing compliance work. But on a deals podcast, what we're going to be focusing on more so is, hey, when you do a deal, when firms are combining together, what are the regulatory aspects that are important to that? Not just in terms of filings, but in terms of due diligence, in terms of integration later, in terms of combining things. But before we get to all of that substantive conversation, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because I am Pretty sure that being the, the the founder and CEO of a regulatory compliance firm was not it back then, but you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> a lawyer. No. I wanted to be a construction worker, to be honest with you, when I was when I was younger. I liked to build things and uh, believe it or not, it was my my parents thought nothing of me like walking into the woods with like a with a, a chainsaw or a circle <laughs> saw or a power saw. And now as a fifty one year old man, my mother cringes every time she finds me working on a <laughs> on a project worrying I'm going to get hurt, but didn't matter when I was five or six. She's like, oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. <laughs> That's so funny. I love it. And what, one more question, uh, looking back, what was the first deal of any type that you did or was involved in? It could have been something when you were small, when you were young or early in your career, or whatever comes to mind. Well, you know, it, it, interestingly, when I first founded Advisor Assist, you know, back in 2004, the SEC rolled out the CCO rule, 20647. And that was in the wake of Sarbanes-Oxley. Everybody was deathly afraid of signing off on financials and and the operational risk. And that that was my role. At the time, I was uh, working with Evergreen Investments, First Union Wachovia. It's now all part of Wells. And it, it occurred to me that not every firm out there had the millions of dollars and the army of people to address all these risks. So that was what first prompted me to jump out and go create my own firm. So I got out there. I was in business for about eight weeks. 
the the world was on fire, clients were coming left and right. This is great. Until it occurred to me that this was back when people still wanted a body in a seat. Yeah. This is great. Well, how am I going to be in Phoenix tomorrow, back in New York the next day, and then back in Boston? And then, by the way, I've got family things to do and then actually accomplish and do any of the work that goes associated with it. So in a moment of weakness, very early on, I allowed myself to be sold to, to a larger consulting firm. And the I won't name them for fairness to them, sure. but the, the deal was that I would travel 20% of the time. But as a, we'll call it still a young, naive industry participant, I didn't read the fine print that I lived somewhere else 80% of the time and 20% of the time I got to travel to come home. <laughs> so I, I found myself, the, the, the doorman at the airport Marriott in Newark knew me better than my family did. So I decided that maybe I need to go back and, re, and reevaluate the way I'm doing this and come up with a different approach. And that's how Advisor System eventually came to be. Oh wow! You see now, I—I I mean, we've known each other for years, and that's something new. I—I I didn't, I didn't know that story. I didn't know you sold yourself. So, hey, listen, most people I talk to, some of the best lessons were from the right deals that went bad or things that you know mistakes we made. So, I'm sure there were some obvious lessons that came out of that experience, <laughs> yeah, right? It, it was good. It was a good experience, and and I actually still to this day good good friends and partners. So it it worked out and left in an amicable manner. And but uh, so it wouldn't change a thing. But certainly don't miss the uh, living out of a suitcase aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, I, I, when I was in my 20s, first starting out as a lawyer, I still thought that business travel was glamorous. And for a while it was, you know, it was very cool. I mean, I was a kid that grew up and never and didn't get on a plane until I was in law school. So the fact that I'd fly to Dallas to do a deal or Atlanta to go to the printers and be up all night on a public, you know, secondary offering or something like that for a while, that was the coolest thing in, in the world. And of course, I was young and single and and it was all new. But yeah, that gets old pretty quickly as you age and have a family or just do it enough. <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. All right. So so let's jump in. I mean, listen, obviously in the in the RA space, regulatory compliance is super crucial for firms on an ongoing basis, on a day-to-day basis, on doing their annual amendments, all the basic stuff, having their policies and procedures in place. But there's this aspect that we want to focus on because we're talking about deals on this podcast that relates to deals. And for the most part, the deals that affect the RA industry are either advisor onboarding deals, tuck-ins, or large large acquisitions. Some way where advisors are combining together and you know whatever the legal format may be. So let's talk a little bit about various aspects of that. I mean, and, and might as well go sort of in order. What what is the kind of due diligence that firm, whether they're bringing in a an advisor or, or acquiring a full independent RA firm, should be doing from a compliance point of view to make sure that they don't make make mistakes when they're combining somebody in. Yeah, you know, so obviously there's due diligence coming from both sides of every transaction. The the firm that is acquiring will want to, and and actually anecdotally, that's actually how I came up with the the business model around assisting more boutique advisors. Back, at, I used to go out to all of the merger targets for First Union and Wachovia when they basically grew from ten from ten billion to one hundred eighty billion without any market performance. But back to the question, you know, I think the key thing for these firms is to have a process, have a checklist, and have a deliberate approach towards getting through core due diligence. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, you know, I think like an auditor, I act like an auditor, I try to, you know, and, and that's what's necessary in order for us to protect everybody when they have their audits from the SEC and state regulators. But the first thing I naturally gravitate to is, let me see your balance sheet. Let me see mm-hmm. your, your income statement. And, you know, often... 
um, that's one of the areas of the most the biggest deficiencies. But I can really tell you so much about a firm. How and where do they make their money? How that how and where do they spend their money? And what's the character or the approach of how they spend their money? So is this a lifestyle practice where you know the expenses are a few office expenses and then it's all golf clubs, trips, and BMWs, or is is there growth into you know the team? So do they have a a, you know, a, a solid team of, you know, operation and re- operational and risk folks, administrative and so forth. So that's usually where I start because it gives me a good foundation to go look at, at various other areas. But we, we would also, you know, recommend that firms dig very deeply into everything from the public records, like their ADVs sure. and, and start to understand, well, how synergistic is this firm? Do we do we have the same type of client? So you know we can, they can both be a billion dollar firm, and one of them can have ten clients, and one of them can have you know two thousand. And is that really going to be a good a good match? So sure. really digging in to try to understand how a firm will align with one another, and and then the division of responsibilities. Really, who does what? You know, is is everything outsourced, and that's not a necessarily a bad thing. And you know, what tools and technologies are, are being utilized, and what's the flow of information? So, what is a day in the life of that business? So, those are kind of the core things that we start to look for. And I'll pause there for a second if you have a question, but then we can hit the other side of it as well. Yeah, no, no, that's great, and I, and I love that you started there, right? Because you know, it'd be easy to just start with, oh yeah, we checked the public records for any disciplinary issues, any client complaints, any whatever, you know. But those are so fundamental. And and I think one of the things I, I, I love about working with you is that, yeah, sure. I mean, the focus is, is regulatory and compliance, you know, consulting and, and services, but you've been in the industry so long, you represent so many firms that some of the practical advice and knowledge you can give to folks, because listen, we all know it's one thing on what's in the compliance policy or procedure, but then like operationally, how do these firms operate, right? And how is that going to mesh together? Because not only does that affect things that are totally unrelated to compliance, right? Just are they going to be able to work together? Do they have the same cultures, all that kind of stuff. But obviously it may also spill into the stuff that you do more directly, right? In terms of how they approach uh, risk management, right? At, which is different than compliance per se, but the, it all comes into that analysis, right? Absolutely. It's very deliberate why we're not advisor assist compliance or some mountain with compliance next to it or some, right. you know, something of that nature. It, you know, compliance is one leg of the stool. So the regulatory compliance, you know, it was it was interesting, you know, going back to when I started the firm, I had I had lunch with a good friend and a reputable uh, industry participant. And he said, well, let me get this straight. You're a compliance firm that's heavily focused on strategy, mindful of technology and understands the full operations of the business. Aren't that's you doing too much? I just looked at him like, is he crazy or am I? Like, how could you do any of them if you can't, you don't think of all of them? And I, I think, you know, in, and that's just kind of in our DNA. So we try to pass that along to our clients as, as, as part of our delivery and ask the how and the why, the inquisitive questions, dig in, understand why they're trying to do it. And I think that same thing ties right into any deal making. Why, why do the parties want to make a deal? Why does the seller want to change his day-to-day life or his future? And why is the buyer think that you might be a good fit? Mm. And in in those, you know, it's it's honestly, there's really just there's there's no substitute for just asking that question, right? Yeah. And just being yeah. and being forthright, just asking the question of, of you know what what's the ideal for you and and 
how do you see me and what would you want? What could I be doing better as a firm to make you want to buy me more? Yeah. You know, things of that nature. Yeah. I love that. Love that. Yeah. No. And, 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 and I love the way, I mean, I guess whoever that person in the industry, the way they described what you do. And I love, I love that description. It, you know, it really encapsulates that, that holistic approach. And there are so many firms out there, not just on the regulatory compliance side in various aspects, but certainly on the regulatory compliance side that really take a much more limited siloed approach. And, and I agree with you. I mean, it's like, it's sometimes those decisions are made without context, without strategy. And it's, I don't think it's as valuable to firms at all. Without a doubt. And, and many think that that's reducing risk. So if you stay, stay in your lane a hundred percent, right, you're mitigating the risk for everybody involved. And, you know, we look at it more from partner and integrate with all involved to be part of the dream team. But if you don't ask the questions that are all, you know, intertwined with the things you're doing, then you're just creating more risk. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I, I love that, that more holistic view. Let's drill down a little more specifically, though, on the compliance side as well, because once you do the biggest stuff, right, you are going to at some point do some drill down on helping them with due diligence and analysis and whatever. So let's talk a little more detail. So what are the kind of things that firms like buy side should be looking at? And then I really want to, so I want to do that first, but then I do want to get to the sell side because I think it's, first of all, buyers are not always, but generally more sophisticated and they tend to have due diligence programs if they, if they do any kind of multiple deals that they sort of know how to do this. Uh, but on the sell side, a lot of firms haven't done it before and they don't even realize the benefit or need for it, including in situations in which they're taking equity, you know, in, <laughs> in, in, in the, in the buyer. Right. So, and I always try to say to them, Hey, you're making an investment decision here. You should be doing some due diligence. Right. But, but let's, let's start on the, let's start on the buy side. What are the kind of things that the buyers are looking like more on a, you know, on a drill down compliance point of view. And then, then let's go to the, the sell side after that. Well, well from a, a uh, pure compliance perspective, you had mentioned one of the things, of course, looking into the background of the people. Is there anyone who has any you know, looming regulatory issues or anything that will come back and create real risk, reputational risk, you know, things of that nature? But, but from a practical standpoint, that analysis of the book of business and the client agreements and the way they do business. So first and foremost, how do you get how do you get the clients from point A to point B? So is it an asset purchase or are you buying the company? You know, I'm sure, and, and, and I've heard you say it on some of your other podcasts, you know, it's, you know, are, you got to look at, are we buying, are we buying legacy risk? Or are we buying, you know, buying an asset, right? So by and large, most of the time we see individuals that are doing a lift out and buying the, the assets and the intellectual capital and the people, and they leave the the shell of whatever's left behind to get shut down and go away. But with that, now comes a few questions, challenges. You know, was the, you know, privacy in, in, you know, depending on where the clients are, do you have the right to the information that's out there? Does your client agreement, is it assignable? Is it assignable via a negative consent in an orchestrated manner? So I, the ideal path of least resistance is if you know everyone can stay at the same custodian client account number doesn't change they don't lose their standing letters of authorization and you know just a new a new logo shows up in the statement you know one morning and everybody's happy but it requires a lot of you know analysis of the contracts and making sure that what you know what the the buyer has uh, what the buyer's agreement looks like and what the seller's agreement looks like will will we'll align with one another. 
And then working with the custodians and other parties to find out, well, based on what we have in front of us, how and what, what's, what's the playbook of how we would transition all of these clients? Yeah. And interestingly, it does all go back to what's the, what's the composition of the book? So we've encountered many situations where negative consent was allowable, but based on the 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 close the the closeness of the high net worth client base, they were going to tell them anyway. So why sit around for thirty days to say if you you know don't get back to me? You know this is what happens. Why not just have them? You know, quick phone call and hey, by the way, I shot you a DocuSign that you'll right. click 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 on your phone and uh, we're all good. So we're seeing a lot of that, you know, the technology is really becoming an enabler on that and allowing a, what used to be a more onerous process, allowing it to be, you know, a lot more manageable. So you don't necessarily have to worry about assignability and things of that nature. Yeah, Um, no, totally makes sense. The, some of the other things to really look at is, you know, regulatory risk. So when was the last time a firm had a regulatory exam? What was on it? And, you know, so was are there issues and almost put your auditor hat in a hat on rather so you know the SEC had these three fundamental issues 2 years ago when they came in to see you well you know likely they're going to be back soon well give them a mini mock audit of sorts well show me that you've dem- what you've done to address those particular issues yeah and 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 so it really just depends if the and that goes both ways, right? So buyer and seller, and and everybody should be comfortable in sharing that. That definitely goes both ways, right? You know, obviously, if you are, you know, if you have somebody who's tucking into a bigger firm and they've had an exam, and listen, it's not unusual, right, for even a well-run firm to maybe have the SEC point out a couple of things that could be done better, right? Yeah. You know, in an audit. I mean, you know, so that's not necessarily deadly on due diligence to a deal that that the SEC, you know, pointed out some questions did they, you know, have they addressed them and how big of a gap was it or an issue was it and then, you know, was it addressed, right? Yeah. And and really what you want to make sure is if if the uh you know the target firm had legacy issues that shutting down the firm doesn't make those issues go away. Yeah. Right. So is there a client complaint or a client issue or a regulatory issue like they weren't doing things right that could, you know, resurface in the future. And carry that risk. So even though it may be under another agreement, as you know, from a legal perspective, there's one thing to win in court. There's another to not have to be there in the first place. So. Right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. You're going to go on to something else. What was it? What was uh, yeah, it? sure. So, and then the other key things, books and records are just so fundamental, right? It's the, the SEC requires that we keep all books and records for at least five full years from the end of the year last used in the business. And then if you shut down the business, it's five full years from the date in which you shut down the business. So who are the vendors? Where where is the information? And 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 how do you does that port over? Do we bring that forward to the new firm? And you know, there's pros and cons to it. Some in some respects, it's always great to have, you know, client history and all all the all the the back information. But if you carry over the files with all the mistakes where you could have found the issue, are you actually now opening yourself up? to the risk or the issue being something that you're you've now adopted. So there's there's a lot to that. Obviously, you know, a, a good due diligence process isn't going to co- go through every every system, every record, every client, every account, but the things to look for are the anomalies. Do you have, you know, clients on, you know, that are, you know, potentially vulnerable adults? Do you have exceptions, clients that are that 
you see a significant more transactions than others, clients that get more attention than others. So it, it's really more taking all of the systems, taking all of the data and looking for what are the trends and what are the exceptions and, and trying to figure out good places to dig in and take a look. Yeah, that totally makes sense. All right. And and as we said, a number of things you said, especially in this last segment, apply both ways. But is there anything else? Again, I sort of preview this, that if due diligence is going to be scamped, it's much more often scamped on the side of the seller, right? Or, mm-hmm. you know, even, even I mean, it certainly is, is scamped on the side of like the individual advisor who happens to be just tucking in, whether they're coming out of a, uh, a wirehouse or an IBD, or maybe they're independent and doing a little actual uh, small acquisition tuck in as opposed to an onboarding. But, you know, I don't know, a lot of times those folks don't feel fully empowered to do, I guess, you know, the kind of due diligence that they might need to do. What are some of the big things that folks like that, because this industry has been mature enough that we've had situations where not only people have broken away and moved to joined or onboarded, but now that they, they've left those places. And a lot of times the reason they leave those places is because of expectations. Now, some of it's on comp or business deal or whatever, but some of it may be, and it may not be purely compliance, but it's sort of operational and systems and the way they, they operate that doesn't may not work for the advisor. So thoughts on that end of it. Yeah. I, I mean, I th- you know, it's sometimes awkward for the, for someone to to do the due diligence on the, the the acquiring partner there, so for the seller to jump in, generally what I would recommend is that they spend some time. They they spend a day in the life, you know, a week over at the office, observe, watch, watch how people do things. You know, sometimes it's awkward and they don't want to ruin a deal by asking too many questions about send me this, send me that. And often, you know, you still have privacy concerns that can be somewhat alleviated, you know, with you with with a visit as opposed to them sending an email with an actual example, you know, if, if someone's standing there without a a pen or a camera, like, you know, showing an illustrative example is not is is not likely going to breach any of those privacy concerns. So I think that's the biggest thing is experiencing it because that your your point is very well taken. We help we help with a lot of tuck-ins over time, but we also unfortunately help with a lot of divorces from those and it's usually those 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 things it's they they thought that they were going to get a lot more by way of support or their understanding of what's the various aspects of support meant is different than what was being offered the trajectory of the firm so how many other firms are going to you know what's what's the growth model so if you're you know if if it's you know it could be a good thing but if you know if there's such a pipeline and backline of the backlog of uh those to tuck in well everybody's just relieved as soon as your assets get over and then do you like fall off a cliff in terms of support because they're off working on the next one so making sure what what's the support going to look like and and that really all has that compliance tie in so Making sure they're properly trained. Like, what will I? What will my day look like? What what systems will I interact with? How and where do I ask questions? What if I want to send a communication out or an advertising review? Who's training me? Where do I submit things for review? All of that stuff becomes really important. And sometimes, as as you mentioned, it's you're like, well, we'll worry about that once the deal's done. And it, it's you know, more often than not, that that does work out. But you know, to the extent that. This is a life decision for, for for most people. It it's something that you know should, should you know clear clear your calendar and spend the time to dig in. Yeah, no question. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. 
Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. All right. So listen, we can spend hours just talking about the due diligence side of it, but I want to cover some of the other acts. But so let's talk about, you know, the deal actually closes. I don't even want to get till sort of after. Let's talk about, and there's some things that have to be done from a regulatory compliance point of view. And just in terms of a deal, like for example, obviously if the if the selling firm is has sold its assets at some point, it's got to, it's probably going to shut down that entity and withdraw its ADV. If it's an independent firm, you know, on the buying side, there may be, may or may not be reasons why, let's say the ADV has to be updated or amended, you know, so like talk about that kind of stuff and anything else that, you know, without getting into total weeds, but like sort of conceptually, what some of the changes are that actually a deal could trigger in terms of the regulatory side, you know, of things. Yeah, I mean, some of the things that we see prompt additional regulatory exams are a significant rapid uptick in assets, change in ownership, of course. And and let's talk a little bit in a moment about entity structures, but the a a 25% or more change in control of a firm is one that requires an affirmation by the client for continuation of the advisory agreement. And it's often something that's easily accomplished because you can just have a nice communication that talks about all the great things to happen. And, you know, you know, there may be a surprise or two, but generally speaking, everyone's gonna be like, oh, that's great from a client standpoint. But the but the timing and the sequences, the sequencing and timing of this are very important. So for instance, still changes have to be reported within 30 days of 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 an occurrence. The entity structure, sometimes firms have a single entity legal structure but in preparation for the deal, they will go out and create a holding company structure for, for numerous reasons there. But one of the biggest mistakes is they go create the holding company structure and then get into a whole bunch of other activities, pre-launch activities. And next thing you know, it's day 31. And they're like, so what do I need to do from a compliance standpoint? <laughs> did I tell you that we just did a deal and we acquired so, such and such a firm? Those types of things cause cause challenges. And we have, there's two ways of doing, you know, the, the regulators look at, at any change in control 25% or more as a technical succession. And we've encountered situations where, you, you know, it wasn't timely enough and you can't prove that it was within 30 days. So therefore, the only way for continuation could is a, is a potentially new SEC application. Wow. So it's that is that is something you never want to have happen, you know, along the way there. But the, you know, those are those are some of the most important things get into that that cap table. The second thing is that there's often deals have sensitivities, new players, new players. So that's one of the reasons why the holding company structure is so important because it allows if you have a the RA is a wholly owned subsidiary. A, the indirect owner, which is the hold co, and ownership that's in that hold co has higher thresholds for reporting. So depending on your role, you know, if you're under 25%, you may not have to be listed on Schedule B of an ADV. But think of it this way: if you, you know, if if Chris Wynn were brought into, you know, XYZ Advisors and you made me a 5% owner. And you and there were five teams that came first that didn't get any ownership. Well, that's going to really harm your model if if you're forced to put me on the ADV. So you want to make sure that those structural things are done in advance 
timed appropriately. You can't do them too early. You can't do them too late. So it's it's that is the finesse part of all of this, which obviously, Corey, you spend a lot of time with, but we're on the the execution end and, and just try to make sure that we that we hit it within those th- those time frames to make sure all the pieces work. Yeah, and and then the only other thing that I'm thinking about is, and is not always the case, but sometimes in an acquisition, the combined firm or the acquired the the, the buying firm will be expanding its scope of services or maybe having different fee structures than they had before for certain clients, things like that. And that also impacts, right? It could trigger some things, right? Yeah. ADV updates so what that would necessitate a material change. And, you know, broadly speaking, material change is anything that, that a, a client or prospective client would reasonably need to know in order to evaluate your services. So it's, it's a really broad catch-all. So if, if, for instance, you were, you know, changing the fee schedule and the fee structure as part of this. Well, you know, that's that's an important aspect. It becomes a material change that could require a communication up to existing clients, you know, uh, of the of the purchaser, right? As well as, you know, everybody else. So timing those items. The other thing that's really important is uh, and often happens is everybody's anxious to shut down the, the the legacy firm. You the firm cannot be shut down until every client is gone. If there's if you move things in a partial manner, the the assignment often helps with the assign the fees go with the contract and things of that nature. But we've had instances where you know firms have shut down. You know, oh, like I want to shut down the firm for twelve thirty one because we don't want to pay regulatory fees, but we're just going to go collect the fee on one one. Well, you can't. You're no longer right. a registered investment advisor. So right. things like that that really need to be thought through in order to avoid you know any real or even perceived risk. Yeah. All right. And I think we covered some of this, but let's talk about now, you know, done the due diligence. We closed the deal. We've addressed some of the things that we just talked about. And now there's the post-deal integration, right? And that integration sometimes involves, maybe they were operating in, with different approaches on compliance, but also, you know, different technology and different operating systems and different things like that. And hopefully you've discovered most of that in due diligence and planned for it well, but you, you know, you see so much of this and, and, and you're much more involved in seeing how things actually, I mean, frankly, for me as a lawyer, right, we're, we're heavily involved in due diligence, negotiating the deal, doing the documents, getting the closing. Once everything's signed and the wires hit, you know, we're, onto the next deal for the most part, right? Unless the client comes back to us with a update or a complaint, you know, or something went wrong, right? But then somebody, right, internally, certainly, and you see much more of this in the role you play, has to integrate that deal from all of those aspects and more. So talk to us a little bit about what you see in terms of those situations and where, you know, firms do it well and where you see problems come up. Yeah, I mean, I I think the firms that do it well started, you know, very much before the deal, you know, in terms of, you know, technology decisions, training, making sure it's it's clear what what operational protocols, how how do you work, how's everything going to play out. The I think some of the pitfalls we see around that is just again like the the like the kinks in the process of how do you execute a transaction for a client under the new firm? What are the systems, all the practical things? That becomes most of the most of the challenges. But one of the big one of the bigger ones is alignment of the portfolios, right? Mm. It's you know, do you are you do you have a different investment philosophy and process, which might be okay. It's there isn't, you know, think of our, you know, very dynamic, you know, you know, national firms and others that have numerous teams, right? The teams run with their autonomous 
investment philosophy and process. But those are things that need to be properly disclosed. If it if it appears as if there's a you know a centralized investment team and an investment committee, and you have one team that's basically their investments are are you know off off the you know completely different than the investment process at, at hand. Well, those are things that are going to get picked apart in an audit. But it also makes it harder to, as time progresses, you know, to you know to, to gain the scale. I mean, the the whole purpose of acquisition is, is scale. So if if you're if if things are not coming together with synergy, then you know you're it's a less profitable deal. And the sooner you address all those things, it's it's the it, it, the, the better. And and it's important, right? Right down to what are the rules of road of the road when you have a client meeting? So what do you document in the CRM? What's the follow up protocol? What you know? Wh- where do the files go? Is there any internal communication? Like all those things become really important. And just getting the two cultures or the two workflows nailed down, and both sides should have an open mind. That, you know, often both learn something that the other did. Said, "Oh, we should adopt that. I like that. You know, sure. good good sure. way of doing." It. Yeah, yeah, and, that, and the, right, and that's that's the great thing is you know when you get to pick the best of both, right? You know, see when you talk about the investment philosophies now integrated, they are they're centralized. By the time this this episode airs, which I believe will be in in March, we're recording it in, actually in December. I think the full series of our RIA integrator and aggregator heads and CEOs will have run already on the podcast uh, special series that we did, and you know for listeners who are interested because there are, there are various models out there as Chris was alluding to and 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 some of them are much much more integrated and some of them are much much less integrated in terms of the freedom to pursue certain investment approaches and and and, and where the investment decisions are made and whether it's the individual advisor or whether it's more centralized and same with tech stack same with branding same with all kinds of stuff and that's a big set of topics that we talked about with these RA a integrators and aggregators who are doing a lot of the deals out there and so that the industry could understand more about the different models and where they are on that spectrum and what might appeal you know to that particular advisor. So definitely if you haven't checked that out, check that out audience because there's a lot of good information on that particular point there. Chris, I I, I do want to say, you know, so we started on a more macro level. We've now drilled down to a more micro level. I want to bring us back out because in this conversation of what's going on in the industry right now, whether it's around deals, whether it's around the continued growth of the industry, whether it's around just the mindset of, you know, listen, you work with 700 firms, right? That's a big chunk of the industry. And I know, you know, you work with a lot of the, the top firms. And so we've had various people on this podcast, including in that special series, who talk about where they see the industry in general, where they see the deal market going. And, and, and I love all their perspectives. And for the ones that are doing deals, obviously, and I'm not saying they're not being honest in any way. I'm not, you know, I'm sure that they really all have a vested interest, right, in a particular outcome. And and listen, I'm an eternally optimistic guy too, and I have a vested interest in deals continuing to be strong. And I don't say it just because it's in my benefit. I just happen to be. So, but my point though in saying all that is that you know, in some ways, you know. You're a little more neutral. I mean, deals can affect you in various ways, right? You can, in theory, lose a client, right? If they're being acquired, you could, you can gain a bigger cli- you know, client when they come in, but you don't have as much of a, you know, of a dog in the fight, so to speak, as, uh, you know, speaking as asking this question from the acquirers or people looking to sell and you have a much broader view. So what are you seeing on a macro level? And again, listeners, keep in mind, 
This will air in 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 March, and we're recording it in December. So if something goes crazy in the world <laughs> in January or February, or the market changes totally, it's not accounting for that. But what do you what are you seeing right now? What are you hearing from your clients in terms of whether they're looking to buy or looking to sell, or or what they're thinking about the market, or are they concerned? You know, obviously there's some long term trends that I think are very strong. There's some short term headwinds that have people concerned. What are you seeing? Yeah, you know it's it's interesting. We, we see a lot of we we see some separate and distinct trends out there. We still see you know a, a lot of deal making and prospective deal making going with firms that have already you know started down the path that have been independent for a period of time. They've worked real hard. They they're they're looking at the the marketplace out there and saying, all right, well you know look we've we've achieved a lot. We've built enterprise value. We we've gone from a book to a business. And this might be the right time to monetize that. So we're seeing a lot of that. On the flip side, we're also seeing a lot, still a very healthy flow of folks that want to first take that, you know, first entrepreneurial step to to get out there. So it's interesting. You see a lot of a lot of press media and 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 you know, I guess I'll even call it noise saying, you know, that there's a you know a trend towards consolidation. And I was like, well, that's only if you're looking left. If you look right, then there's a trend towards, you know, towards entrepreneurship. And I think that I think the the good part about the industry is we're maturing, but we're not mature. Yes. So there's so many f- folks that are out there to say, well, I haven't I haven't put my five to seven years in. Of course, I want to sell and have a big liquidity event at some point in in, in the future. But you know. I need the multiple to be based off of a number that's actually worth <laughs> that will actually be meaningful for me. So I have work to do. So we're seeing a lot of that. We, we still see a continued a, a lot of folks leaving wirehouses and other broker dealer environments, and you know we're seeing the broker dealers react and evolve to better offerings. You know for that to try to keep and keep and attract them. And so so I look at this as you know it's actually the perfect scenario for a healthy market. It's so you have a whole bunch of fu- of future transactions that are cultivating in the background every day, while we're seeing about a, a bunch of deals, and that's what's exciting, obviously, to us. I mean, we work at setting up, you know, nearly a hundred firms every year, and so when we when we were happened to be at a uh, industry event with one of the you know larger custodians, and they had they had remarked that things were strong but but they're seeing a little bit of slowing and I'm like well geez it's actually we feel like it's going the other way and that's because we're we're we're, we're targeting and we're instrumental in multiple parts of that of that equation mm-hmm. so it keeps us active and it keeps us it keeps us busy and it, it and, and it certainly keeps it interesting <laughs> yeah, for that. yeah yeah but yeah I think that there's a lot of trends and you know, look we still have a Aging advisor population, not enough people going into the the, the industry as there should be. Yep. The representative demographics of the industry are are you know getting more you know my, more diverse and representative of the country as a whole you know every month. But there's still a long way to go there. So I I think a lot of that is is all factoring in. The other part that I think I've noticed is that. Um, Advisors don't ever really retire. So what we are finding is a significant uptick in solicitor relationships. Mm. So while the you know the the rainmaker for may want to sell his firm off and have his or her requi- liquidity event and, and start to you know move themselves towards retirement, they can't give up the business that they're in. 
And what we're encouraging a lot of firms, a lot of buyers is to say, well, look, keep people around. If you don't, if you don't want some, if you think it's best for someone to not be a full-fledged investment advisor representative because the way they're going to handle things are different, well, have them remain in the capacity as a solicitor to minimize firm risk, keep them, you know, keep them tight to the firm. Uh, because they'll inevitably be out there, you know, for the rest of their life talking about the 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 markets, giving advice, and you want to make sure that you know once your deal is gone, that they don't say that someone else is the best firm that they've ever met, right? So, yeah. it, so we're seeing that as a trend. Yeah, and 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 listen, that it, it makes sense because from the advisor's point of view, I mean, even if they're not really looking to work every day and they don't want to, you know, be an advisor. You know, somebody especially who's built their own firm has relationships, has connections, has whatever. Business is going to continue to flow in, and why shouldn't they be able to monetize that? And obviously, it's it makes sense for the for the buyer because that's you know they're always looking for additional business. So, yeah, th- those relationships totally make sense. I love that. One other place I want to go before I ask you your the, the final two questions to whatever extent you want to talk about it, I and mean, obviously not any specifics on your deals. But you actually made a fundamental deal decision, right? At some point, to take in, you know, in, in investment capital to to help you grow. That's a deal that some people choose to do, some people don't choose to do, and it certainly helped accelerate your growth. You know, from from what I've seen and and build capacity. And you know, we've known each other for for a while, and you've always had a great firm. And you know, you guys have really, you know, become even more of a leader in the industry and handled more and more folks. So, talk a little bit about, if you will. That decision generally, right, you know, to take on a capital partner and what it's allowed you to do. Sure. Well, you know, the the, the decision to take on the capital partner was really based around my view of the industry and the in the growth that we wanted to that we wanted to be part of. There originally the firm was, you know, wholly owned by myself and my and my spouse, but we had a lot of a lot of individuals that we wanted to, you know, continue to cultivate, be part of the advisor assist team. And, you know, my responsibility as the owner of advisor assist was both to our clients and to and to our employees. Yeah. So we had many opportunities out there where folk where firms were offering private equity competitors and others were offering to acquire us. And it said, well, this is really good for the Wynn family. Not so good for everybody else. Right. And we I had to take a take a step back and, you know, really think about it and 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 look into things. And really the really the key thing. So interestingly, Merchant was the was the firm that that became our partner in all of this. And when I when I first had the conversation with them, it was very interesting. I that, that we were doing a lot of work together and they said, well, we should invest in you. And my response to the CEO over there, Tim Bella, was, well, geez, Tim, I'm flattered and we don't need any money. And he like laughed at me. He's like, well, if you do, I wouldn't give it to you. <laughs> and I was like, well, I can work with that. Like that was like, it was actually very refreshing because, and it goes back to my point of what's the motivation of the buyer? What's the motivation of the seller? Right. He was completely open. I was completely open with him and he was completely open with me. And I was like, that's I, I like this. All right, wait a minute. Let's keep talking, and and really the key thing that I wanted to do was cr- to create the path of towards ownership for the others on the team, and to be able to con- continue to build and diversify, you know, advisor assist as a whole. It's you know, as a small business, you know, we, we you know, obviously when we, we met Corey, only there was only a handful of us. You know, we're now. 26, 27 people or so, but the, you know, even, even that's still, you know, by definition, a small business. And, 
you know, the, 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 the key challenge with all of those things is to how to, how to balance growth and how to empower others. And the biggest decision that I made was to what was, was how to remain fully active in the business while empowering everybody else to come up, which, which they were already doing, but to, to let, to have them feel that they had the same level of, of, autonomy, say, input, et cetera, in the firm. And that's what we did. And that and that first deal with merchant really made that possible. Mm. So it was it was it was great. And not every firm is ready to, you know, and, and every owner is ready to go to to just go away. Right. And it's and that and that was for, from my perspective, you know, I don't care about titles. I don't care about the name on the door. It's, you know, there's a lot left to do here. In this in this industry, and we want to be working with you know like-minded folks to you know do the best we can and have a have a big impact. Yeah, and you've you've certainly done it. I mean, it's you know great success story, and it's far from over. I know that. So you know, and I, I, again, I appreciate our partnership and the growth you've had and the, and the journey we've had together. So, if people want to find out more about Advisor Assist. What's the plus, best place for them to go? Sure. Advisorassist.com is our is our website and you know, plenty of information there. Obviously, happy to have a conversation with anyone that I could be helpful to as well. And that's just cwin at advisorassist.com to catch me there and and or LinkedIn or any other channel. We're out there. <laughs> Great. So my final question on the podcast, Chris, is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from all people around the world, from oppression to the reason why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and haven't had a boss. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Well, you know, it's very, very similar to what you say. You know, I guess we'd say freedom could be doing a podcast at 630 at (laughs) night, a Friday night. Wait a minute, is that freedom? But, you know, I, I think the, you know, it's, it's less, for me, it's less about, you know, the, the, the having the. The having the boss and being able to do whatever you want, but more so being able to be able to pivot and be able to assist people and be able to be be able to evolve your firm, your offerings, your needs to what people need. So I, I, the the nimbleness of entrepreneurship is one of the things that that I find the most exciting about it, and and the ability to you know to 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 customize and to do things if someone has someone has a need, but like. We can help you do it that way. We can, you know, this is great. We don't have a, you know, a, a, a checklist and a in a rigid process. I mean, obviously, we do have the you know the controls, but we don't have a rigid process where we can't go deviate from that to help someone to go do something strategic. And that's love the it. part. That's the part I like about. It. Yeah, love it, Chris Wynn, Thank you for being such a great guest on the Deal Quest podcast, and again, a great friend and industry partner. Likewise, thanks so much, Corey. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, 
wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.